Ladies and gentlemen, the Warner Archive Collection is pleased to present a very special podcast honoring the wonderful Mr. Danny Kay. We have new releases of Danny Kay that have just come out on DVD. We have Danny Kay The Goldwyn Years, which is a four-disc set that features Up in Arms, Wonder Man, The Kid from Brooklyn, and A Song is Born, all in Technicolor, all looking terrific. That's a four-disc set. Then we have a double feature from Paramount that is The Court Jester and The Five Pennies. So these six movies join Mary Andrew, which is a 1958 MGM film that Danny Kaye starred in, which Warner Archive made available previously. And all of these films are now available at the Warner Archive. And in order to celebrate Danny Kaye's 100th birthday, I recently had a phone conversation with his delightful daughter, Dina Kaye. And it's my pleasure now to share with you that telephonic conversation. So let's go to the videotape. No, it's not videotape. It's just digital. So let's go to the recording and let you hear my conversation with Dina Kay talking about her wonderful father, Danny. Today, it's my great pleasure, a really emotionally satisfying and rewarding pleasure and meaningful pleasure to welcome Miss Dina Kay to the Warner Archive Collection podcast to celebrate the 100th birthday, the centenary of her wonderful father, the beloved Danny Kay. Dina Kay, welcome to the Warner Archive Collection podcast. Well, what a wonderful welcome. Thank you very much. You and I have had the pleasure of speaking on the phone many times personally as we've gotten ready for the centenary, and you've been working dauntlessly with all the studios to make sure that all your dad's wonderful films are available to the public, and we're taking great pleasure here at Warner Brothers that we just made available a four-film collection of Danny Kay, The Goldwyn Years, with four of the films he made uh, for Samuel Goldwyn, Up in Arms, Wonder Man, The Kid from Brooklyn, and A Song is Born, and also a double feature that's back in print on DVD of his most beloved films made for Paramount, The Court Jester and The Five Pennies. So we're going to want to talk about that, but from a personal standpoint, I just think it's so wonderful that you've done so much to remind everyone and they don't need a lot of reminding because I think generation upon generation loves Danny Kay and this is a celebratory centenary. But I'm in debt to all of you at the studios because you're the people uh, that make it possible for the public to rediscover his work and um, it is gratifying because to me the whole point of the centennial was it's, it's wonderful to be honored at a dinner but the whole point of trying to shine the spotlight onto my father again is his work. Because all you have to do is see Danny Kay, and you don't need anybody explain to you who he was, what he was, what he did, because you just feel it. That's all you need. There's a cinematic legacy that I think so many of his most famous films such as Hans Christian Andersen and White Christmas, they've really never left sight. But you've managed through talking to folks like myself who are already planning to do something and people at the other studios to make sure that everything was available for the centenary, for the 100th birthday. And we get to see 
a man who was a superstar on the silver screen and also one of the great humanitarians of the world. Because when I think of him, I think of listening to his records as a child, seeing his movies on television, and also watching his television show, which was on too late for me to watch, but I stayed up anyway <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> but that he was really an ambassador uh, of goodwill all around the world with UNICEF, and I just think of him going beyond just being a worldwide celebrated entertainer, that he was a beloved person. And I would imagine that everywhere you go and people find out who you are, they just want to... Do people just come up to you out of nowhere when they <laughs> discover that you are Danny Kaye's daughter and want to convey how much they loved him? I'm sure that must be the case. Normally, George, in my life, it's I don't, um, I am just not the kind of person that I really make it public on who I am unless there's a really good reason. And, and during this centennial, I've sort of felt like putting it on the back of every shirt I wore. <laughs> you know? um, people really loved him and admired him, and people always have wonderful memories, I'm, and, and everyone has a story. I met one woman at, uh, at a screening of the Paley Center in Los Angeles about his television shows who said she used to work in the Beverly Hills Post Office, and that uh, he came in to renew his passport, or send in his passport, and she said, I just couldn't resist asking him to do the vessel with the pestle, which is, of course, <laughs> one of the emblematic things from the court jester. But what's really moving is that it's just as you say, people felt as though they knew him. Really, he was a character. I mean, you know, you, you're relating to a personality, a particular role. But in fact, people just feel that they knew him. And his whole work with UNICEF was really a, a departure. Here's a man who, at the height of his career, 53-54, White Christmas, Hans Christian Andersen, knock on wood, kind of stopped and said, okay, um, I'm going to be the voice in the face of UNICEF. And in fact, um, 2014 is his 60th anniversary as UNICEF's first goodwill ambassador. And so I have wanted tirelessly to include UNICEF in all the centennial activities where it's appropriate. I didn't know that, um, so I'm glad that I brought it up. But that's what I think of because I remember, you know, when we would go collecting money for UNICEF at Halloween. I would always associate that with Danny Kaye uh, as, a little, as a little kid. My mommy give me a drink of water record or the Hans Christian Andersen. Wasn't that wonderful? <laughs> mommy give me a drink of water, honestly. But I, I, um, think, I think children, you know, especially I saw Hans Christian Andersen when it was first on television. It was probably about six years old when it was on mm. ABC. And I remember him hosting The Wizard of Oz when it was on CBS. Mm. And, he, I mean, he was like the Pied Piper. He was a role model for children. And, and I think that a lot of people older than myself who grew up seeing his films in the theater and then all the generations that experienced his work on television and subsequently now on video, he's forever young and he's forever the Pied Piper for people of all ages. I hope that's the case. You know, he was um, as uh, crazy and oddball as many of his characters were, especially in your collection, The Golden Years, you know, a hypochondriac, a, you know, a guy that's, that sings a song about Melody in 4F that my mother wrote in Open Arms, Wonder Man, where my, I think my favorite scene in Wonder Man is when he's in the park with the, with the policeman and treating the policeman sort of as a, as a base, and he's 
kind of playing it with his wood baton. I mean, you know, you wonder, has this guy got all his marbles or what? He was a very, very serious performer. He took his, what he used to call his profession, very, very seriously. He said, you know, I don't know what I would have... He said, I think I just had to be a performer. I had to be a performer. And that's how he expressed himself. But the interesting thing, I think, which you've touched on already, is that... um, He was a role model, and to me, he's a role model for three reasons. One, he is somebody who had multi-talents, and he expressed them in multiple venues. So he could dance, he could sing, he could make you cry, he could make you laugh. He was on television, he was on stage, he was in the movies, he was on on the radio, and he did recordings. So he was a multi-talented in so many venues. Two, he he was an inspiration, a role model for taking on a cause. Um, Not that today's... um, Hollywood stars who support things think of my father, but in fact, he was the first one. And then in his private life, you know, he had passions. And I think to young people today, it's interesting to say, you know, follow your passions. And so he had time in his life to cook, to learn how to fly an airplane, to own a baseball team, to conduct orchestras, to raise money for musicians' pension funds. So he was a man who was devoted to his profession, and he had many interests outside his profession, which to me made him a, I don't like this term, but it made him a very well-rounded human being. Which is rare because so many people in the business get caught up in the business and they don't Mm -hmm. have a balance between work and life and they miss out on life. And he certainly did not miss out on life. And you are proof of that. You know, people often ask me, you know, they just lump all of us Hollywood children into one pot and assume we stayed up late and went to Academy Awards and, you know, got drunk at an early age. And I just, you know, my we lived in the same house from the late 40s until I sold it in the 90s when my mother died. I've never been to an Academy Awards, much to my regret now that I'm a grown-up. And um, it was as normal a childhood as one could imagine. I went to regular schools. My father, you know, took me on his golf cart at the golf club, and I got to drive it when I was 10, which was a thrill, and then we'd have club sandwiches and lemonade. And he participated in my life, and even to a greater extent when I got older and and was working as a journalist. He went with me to Italy when I did a story in a cooking school. I was going to Hong Kong to do a story for a magazine called Saturday Review, and he said, well, how'd you feel if I came with you? So my life with my father was a very shared life. I mean, and that's great to hear. The obvious question I think a lot of people would want to know is, when you were old enough to recall, were you on the sets of any of the films, and do you have any memories of that? uh, You know, I really wasn't. I mean, there are Ah. two stories that I do remember. I went to see, I don't remember, it might have been... um, I don't want to be held to the might have been on, on, on the Metro lot. My, I was a big Roy Rogers fan. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, do you want to go over to see, you know, the Roy Rogers set? We have to go now because they're going to shoot Trigger. Trigger was Roy Rogers' horse. Mm-hmm. And I was horrified because as a child, I thought they meant they were going to kill the horse. Oh, <laughs> And um, the only movie I was ever in was The Five Pennies actually. Well, I was going to ask you about that film specifically. (laughs) There's a scene in the hospital, and I was thrilled, my goodness. So I must have been 12 or 13, because I was at a, I remember the school I was at, and I 
got to go to the Paramount School on the Lot for a day or two, and boy, I just thought this was, you know, hot potatoes. And I remember being in a wheelchair, and um, I had a line, and the line was, let's do Schnitzelbach again, which is a song my mother wrote. And the line never got into the movie. And, I mean, I don't even know if you can even see me in the movie, but I really... I would visit my father in the Paramount lot from time to time. I remember going with him when one of the Westmores, I don't remember which one, would make him up. And in those days in Paramount, everyone had bicycles. So he had a bicycle and he had a kind of a metal plaque under the bar that said Danny Kay. And we'd, I'd get a bike and we'd go to the commissary and have lunch. But those were rare things, George. I really, people often ask me, well, what did he say about his work and what movie did he like and who did he like working with? And honest to God, I to my regret now, why didn't talk to him about his work at all? It wasn't something we really discussed. This leads to a side question. Your mom, Sylvia Fine, a magnificent composer writing both music and lyrics, and beautiful songs, funny songs, and I wanted to mention that she wrote a lot of his material, but she was really um, ahead of her time because songwriting was basically a boys' club in those days. And you had certain people like Dorothy Fields or Kay Swift or Kay Thompson that would be writing songs, but it really wasn't, you know, likely that women had roles in writing music and Mm -hmm. lyrics. And she wrote spectacularly wonderful things, both comedic and serious. I think of Lullaby and Ragtime, just gorgeous Mm -hmm. songs. Do you remember her composing at home? That I absolutely do. And I just want to say in in parentheses that in your collection, she wrote songs for Up in Arms, for Wonder Man. She wrote for The Five Pennies. She was nominated for an Academy Award for the title song for The Five Pennies and for The Court Jester. In fact, for the five pennies, she wrote what's the right a, tri- a triple can't think of the right word <laughs> a trio, but that that sung at the same time it was lullaby and ragtime, good night sleep type, and the five right. pennies, and she wanted to know what it sounded like. So she got me and the woman who sang for Barbara Bell Gettys, whose name was Eileen Eileen Wilson Kellogg, I believe. No, no, it was Eileen. It's not a different Eileen. And I sang the vibe to my horror. And so that was how she heard what the three songs sounded like together. But, I mean, I remember vividly, because my mother worked at home, um, there's a piano in the living room. And when I'd see my mother for breakfast, it was because she was had been up all night writing. She was a night owl. That's when she did her best work. She had her ye- yellow legal tablet and one of those black eagle pencils with the rectangular erasers, and um, she'd often say to me, well, Dina, which do you like, you know, A or B mm-hmm. of this, you know, here's a version of this song, A or B, and so i tell her. I mean, even I remember from being very young up through when I was in college at Stanford, I can remember her calling me on the phone. I have no idea, George, if she took my advice or what, and I loved how she sang. I even loved how she sang better than how he sang, because she didn't have a good voice, but what she had was the feeling in the songs. And um, the song, in fact, from... Um, and I'm so glad you pointed out that she could write ballads as well. The song from Knock on Wood, All About You, Irving Berlin told her it was a perfect love song. Well, you know, she was a child prodigy as a classical pianist. 
this I did know, and I remember also I loved the specials that she did for PBS, mm. the musical comedy Tonight, of which your dad was actually on one of them, I believe. He was. And, he was. Uh, but it was like, you know, again, ahead of its time, people weren't looking back on who created what, and those were extraordinarily entertaining shows. And uh, I, she was what a wonderful hostess. And it was nice to see her have the spotlight, you know, for what she did. What I remember was in the late 1970s when I was uh, in high school, uh, I used to go down to Manhattan and see Barbara Cook, the wonderful soprano, Mm, in nightclubs. And she added Lullaby and Ragtime to Mm. her repertoire. At, uh, she used to perform at a place called Reno Sweeney's. And she eventually sang it at Carnegie Hall when she did a wonderful concert there in 1980, which I was fortunate to attend. But she said that she and her musical director, Wally Harper, they thought Lullaby and Ragtime had been written by Irving Berlin, and they were shocked yeah. and delighted to My find goodness. that it was written by Sylvia Fine. And uh, she always mentioned that. Every, I would go see her show again and again and again. So mm. I just wanted to relate that story to you because I thought well, that's Well, that's, that's wonderful. I, I realized I didn't address your point, which was that my mother was a maverick um, in her time. She really was. She was born and bred in the New York theater. I mean, she, she collaborated with Cole Porter on Broadway, even. And when they came out to Hollywood, it was just a much different world where she was simply the wife of, despite the fact that, of all her credits, despite the fact that Samuel Goldwyn kind of took her under his wing as the unofficial, um, as an unofficial, how would you say, the associate producer just on the set of my father's movies, and despite the fact she accompanied my father in nightclubs. So I think those years in Hollywood were a hard go because um, women just didn't do that. Exactly. So the fact that the Academy recognized her with nominations and that work and those songs which live on in Mm -hmm. films is quite memorable. I wanted to ask you about Sam Goldwyn. Your dad was under contract to Sam Goldwyn for his first several films, was that a, a harmonious relationship because he was known to be some somewhat cantankerous? Uh, I have no which idea. He, his family would absolutely would, no idea. Really? I, no, because you know I was pro- probably just well, born. Yeah, and I, and were, as I said, I don't. You know, they didn't really talk didn't about talk it. My about mother said that Mr. Goldwyn started calling my father Danny right away, and so he called him Sam. But, you know, and there were always those wonderful jokes about it. My mother would say about Sam Goldwyn that she would play a song for him or he would watch a scene, and he couldn't quite say specifically what was the matter, but he'd say it's sort of a little long in the middle. And kind of my mother and he had this way of communicating that she understood what he meant. But as far as they're getting along together, I really try not to comment on I, I truly have no idea. Truly have no idea. But the films speak for themselves, and that's why we're so delighted that they're now well, exactly. available. I just have to say, George, I am so personally grateful to you because you and I had not met that's right. um, when I called and knocked on your door on the phone almost a year ago, and you were already planning to come out with these two separate collections and having nothing to do with me. And I, it, it's just there are rare people who care so much which is what you do at Warner Archives, about 
preserving the old. Um, you know, the wonderful, amazing theater, I don't even know what to call him, Robert Wilson, director, scenarist, uh, lighting director, architect Robert Wilson, um, said, you know, the avant-garde is really rediscovering the classics. Right. And I always think of after the premiere of That's Entertainment, Jack Kelly Jr. went to his father and said, so what would you think, Dad? And, you know, they had just seen 30 years' worth of musical clips, and Jack Kelly Sr. said to Jr., he goes, this isn't nostalgia, this is great, and when something's great, it's timeless. And I have always what a wonderful loved thing. that this quote. Is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I've always Absolutely. loved that quote, because... Every year, and we're just about to get to the time, and this has nothing to do with Warner Archive, but has everything to do with Danny Kaye. Christmas, for me, is not Christmas without watching White (laughs) Christmas. That brings me up to another point that I just want to touch on briefly is Mm -hmm. when he left Sam Goldwyn's uh, employ, your dad really was the producer, his production company was involved in almost all the films in which he appeared. Wasn't he one of the first people to do that? I don't know the answer to that either. Don't you love me? I mean, by training, I'm a journalist, so I always feel it's better to say I don't know rather than make up an answer. Well, I will tell you that you see Dean of Productions. I wonder where he got that name. I said to them, my mother, I said, well, that's very nice, but I'd rather you named it after my favorite cat, Cream Nose, Aww. which they did not do. I know. They didn't do that. So you can see I didn't, as a child, I was more devoted. I wonder why my cat's name wasn't in lights. Well, that reminds me. But I must me, I... say, now, at this age and certainly in the past few decades, it's a thrill for me to see the productions up there. It's kind of a link that I had nothing to do with to them. Yeah, it, it really is, because everybody says, and I say, well, that's that's his daughter's name. and Because mm-hmm. we, we're doing the packaging, we have to list the, the, the copyrights. And the, I said, see, look, and everybody's like, oh, that's so nice, you know. <laughs> um, this has always been a, a passionate thing. Uh, we, within our own library, we had released Mary Andrew, which I think is a very wonderful film that's underrated, uh, mm-hmm. two years ago, but with our new distribution arrangements with both the Goldwyn family and with Paramount, that's enabled us to release these six films. And uh, two of them have never been on DVD, and four of them are returning to DVD, and now that means that all six are available, plus Mary Andrew. And of course, last year, we released Hans Christian Andersen through Warner Home Video on both Blu-ray and DVD. So it's a Danny K. Cornucopia at Warner Brothers, of which we're it very, is. very proud. And aren't you re-releasing um, Walter Mitty? That's right. On December 5th, Warner Home Video will be releasing The Secret Life of Walter Mitty on DVD. That will be rounding out. Uh, what a wonderful way to start the holiday. I cannot begin to tell you, and I've said it several times during our chat today, I just... Um, That's been my dream. Uh, When I started thinking about the centennial two and a half, three years ago, I thought, gosh, you know, nothing speaks more than the work. And I have had to watch all of these movies again for the purposes of being an educated uh, watcher. You know, I'm not just looking at them as his daughter. I'm kind of saying, okay, well, what's... What is the um, emblematic Danny Kay? What are the themes throughout all of his movies? Do the characters resemble one another? I mean, if you look at, say, 
Secret Life of Walter Mitty or, uh, you know, the kind of movies where somebody gets murdered and he's the unwitting witness to this, what happens? Or the fact that he plays double characters, say, in, you know, like in Wonder Man. Wonder I mean, Man. He plays double characters in On the Riviera. Right. So I've had to watch it with at arm's length, and so it's been fascinating to have to do that. Because I'll tell you, as a child, I hated Hans Christian Andersen because my father was in jail. That's right. <laughs> when he sang Thumbelina, I saw nothing else except Daddy's in jail. It's a, it's a little bit disturbing for there. There are <laughs> a lot of parts of that movie that are a little bit on the dark side for a little kid, and I remember experiencing that because you know they're not nice to Hans, and it's uh, there's some mm. mean people and. Uh, you know, but one of the things I wanted to relate to you, this is a personal story. Um, mm-hmm. I had the great good fortune of being friendly with Rosemary Clooney during oh, how wonderful. part of her life. And courtesy of our mutual friend, Michael Feinstein. Mm. And Michael and I would often go over to Rosemary's house on Sundays because Sunday was like open house at Rosemary's. And she'd make her New England clam chowder and sit and talk. And we would just have loads of fun. And I remember very distinctly one afternoon she was telling stories about how your dad would crack up everybody on the set of White Christmas. (laughs) Most significantly, Bing Crosby, who didn't always have a sense of humor and mm. he reduced your father to hysterics. In fact, we uh, had interviewed, not me personally, but there was a, a television show done on my father. I just can't remember which one. And she was graceful enough to be interviewed. And mm-hmm. she said in the scene where they sing Sisters, right. where they're dressed up and they have, um, you know, these big blue bow of fans, my father kept hitting Mr. Crosby in the stomach with his fan. And according to Rosemary Clooney, you know, he broke him up. And that he didn't want that take to stay in the movie, and so they redid it, redid it, redid it. But finally, in the actual movie of White Christmas, if you look really carefully at that scene, you can see that Bing Crosby is just laughing himself silly. Yep, it's one of my favorite moments. And then having Rosemary validate the story in person. You know, uh, just a personal story for me on Rosemary Clooney. I, um, I live in Colorado, and... A number of years ago, she came up to Colorado to sing at the jazz festival in June. And she said, does anyone have any requests? And I raised my hand and I said, would you sing White Christmas? There we were in the mountains in Aspen in June, mm-hmm. and she was singing White Christmas. And there was no one like her voice, was there? No, her voice, was. she was all about, listening to her sing was to me like having a warm blanket on a cold night. Oh, what a good description. just reassuring, and as she got older, you know, she was a great interpreter of a lyric, and her phrasing Mm. was impeccable. But when she came back in the late 70s and started recording on a frequent basis, she covered all the great composers' songbooks, and um, I was always a fan, and then that she became a friend, and... I have a Christmas card from her that says, Dear How George, wonderful. you're such a good son. Love, Rosemary. Oh. I treasure that. I mean, that's... Isn't that something? You know, I mean, my Well, I know God. she was a great influence on somebody who I'm proud to call my friend and admire greatly, and that's Diana Krall. Oh, yeah. Because to me, there's so many female singers today who they sing, but they don't move me. And I can listen to somebody, and if they don't touch my heart, I go, I, why, why, why listen? Exactly. And if we want to talk about touching the heart, uh, 
No one touched the heart and made us laugh as much as Danny Kay did. And that's why we're so grateful to you, Dina, for taking the time to talk with me today. And to all the listeners of this Warner Archive Collection podcast, I thank you. So happy 100th birthday to your dad. (laughs) Happy holidays to you. I'm looking forward to seeing you in person next year. (laughs) That would be perfect. Listen, I just, I can't thank you enough because you're the people that keep him going. So it's my thanks to you, truly. Well, thanks again for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this Warner Archive Collection podcast.